0: Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa.
1: And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers.
0: Susan Davis is the founder and president of Desert X, a site-specific contemporary art exhibition that is held in the Coachella Valley of Southern California every two years. Since 2017, Desert X has pushed the boundaries of art beyond the gallery walls, to present work that engages with the public in desert environments through unique installations created by acclaimed artists from around the world.
1: While responding to and amplifying the dramatic range of landscapes and seascapes within the desert environment, DesertX X is also a visual articulation of the critical issues facing our world today, including conservation, climate change, segregation, false historical narratives, and indigenous land rights. Since 2020, Susan Davis has expanded Desert X beyond California, producing two biennial exhibitions in the striking landscapes of the Alula regions of Saudi Arabia. With Desert X returning in 2023, we spoke with Susan about the process of creating a site-specific endeavor of this enormous scale, the responsibility of art to spark crucial dialogue, and why she always welcomes a little controversy.
0: We welcome Susan Davis to Art Laws.
1: So Susan, tell us about the inception of Desert X. What was your original vision and your dream and how did it come to you?
2: Part of it was synchronicity. Part of it was sheer determination and part of it was accidental. I moved to Palm Springs in 2010 quite by accident and Over the course of a couple of years while I was living there, I realized that Palm Springs was not just swimming pools and golf courses, but it had a very fascinating and rich history, one that most East coasters would never think about. And then what I learned additionally was that many people that lived in the valley, in the Coachella Valley, which is 40, 50, 60 miles long and Palm Springs is just the most Western end of it. They didn't understand the history or uh, the richness of the environment. And when I say that, what I mean is we've all heard the Hollywood rendition that stars came out there in the 1920s and 30s because it was within two hours of Los Angeles, and that's what their contracts called for, meaning that they weren't supposed to be further than two hours away from the studios. And if you dig a bit deeper, what you find is not only cowboys and Indians, real ones, not Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, but you also find pioneer women who started the area as a place to regain health for tuberculosis. There were German immigrants or German tourists who came where their theory was to be naked and the sun was very healthy. Anyway, it was this sort of weird place that brought people from literally all over the world. And then what you also have is at the Southern end, this rich agricultural area, which is antithetical to desert. As I discovered these things, I became more and more fascinated with the area. And then my own personal passion is contemporary art and contemporary art outside of the walls of the art museum and the gallery. And I've done that throughout my career, literally, In my early 20s, I tried to do a project like that. So all of these things came together. And the sort of birthing story or the creation story is that I had gone to a biennial in Cartagena and my daughter was actually working there. And it was the only one. It was the first and only Cartagena biennial. And it was one with hundreds of artists, but they were placed in very unusual spaces, both institutional spaces, as well as various neighborhoods and areas. So I spent a week in Cartagena as a tourist, but really an art tourist. And I saw places that nobody in a week would visit. And, I don't know if you've ever been to the Palm Springs Airport, mm-hmm. but it is the best airport in the United States. And as I was coming home from that trip, and as you know, the airport is outside, and you arrive, and there's a little escalator. And as I came down the escalator, to my right were the windmills, to straight ahead were the mountains, to the left were the palm trees, and I went oh my God, I can do this. This is the genesis of an idea where we can put art all over the valley. People can travel from one end to the other, explore, see art in these magnificent settings and start to understand better or dig deeper about what this area is all about. So that was probably 2014. So, I started talking to people about it. And basically, it happened very quickly. Everybody thought it was a great idea, and everybody said, We'll go ahead and do it. So, in 2015, I had gathered a small number of people to join a board. We started the 501c3. We raised some little bit of money, enough to do what the person we had identified to be our curator, Neville Wakefield. And I went to him and I said, this is the amount of money we have. What do we do if we don't raise another penny? And he said, don't worry. (laughs) We'll do one fabulous piece. We'll do three pieces and various. Don't worry, we can do it. And we opened the show early in 2017. So that's sort of the the genesis and the the longer story. Wow. So,
1: if, what would you say was the mission of this
2: project? It's really interesting because the original, what I call my vision statement, my one-page vision statement, that. I went around talking to people about and sort of left on their desks and said, you know, let me know what you think is exactly what Desert X is right now. The mission was to have art knowledgeable people, art seeking people, and anybody and everybody else to travel throughout Coachella Valley Seeking art as if they were on a treasure hunt. And then in so doing, explore both the valley that they were visiting, living in, and to meet other people and have what you might call cultural conversations. To really engage with their neighbors and say, wow, look at that mountain I never looked at. It that way? Or what do you think this artist meant? Or why am I stepping down on this rickety ladder to go into a bunker and see this silly statue of John F. Kennedy? Why? And that was the vision. And that's that's what's happened. This past year, we were lucky enough that we were able to open during. The pandemic and on opening day, people flocked to these places, and they were what I would term gleeful, not only to to have an activity, but to see their neighbors. And they were like, Oh my god, I'm seeing art, I'm seeing people, I can talk to people finally. So That
0: was the mission. It's funny, I've been to all three so far in the Coachella Valley, and you say treasure hunt because I think that's the perfect way of describing it, because you're sort of on, you're looking at the map, you're going to all these places that are so different and seeing how different the desert is and how different the people are and the settings. I'm just wondering, logistically, the desert is such a complicated place in terms of legislation and people and politics, and how do you even make this happen at this scale? Didn't I say determination,
1: tenacity?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you bring this up because I think most people, and we have literally hundreds of thousands of visits each time we put up a show. I think most people do not understand just how complicated it is. And the process is really part of our adventure. And it really helps the curators, board members, team members to understand better where they're living. And I think in a funny way, it helps city councils, police departments to also get engaged, not only in the process, but in the final installations. And that, for us, is an extra added bonus. So our process, it takes at least two years to put these projects together. And what we do is, in the most recent shows, Neville, who's both curator and our artistic director, works with a, one or two other curators to curate the shows. They get together together, and put together a list of artists that they think would work together that would make a show happen in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. They invite those artists to participate. And then from that list, somewhere between 20 and 25 artists visit the Coachella Valley 12, 18, 24 months prior to the opening of the show. They stay in the Coachella Valley anywhere from two, five, seven days. And we do what I call Coachella Valley 101. And they go with the curators or members of the curatorial team throughout the valley. And they learn about the history, the environment, the sociopolitical goings-on. And they visit various sites that we've activated previously, Mm -hmm. that we think we might want to activate. And then the artists go home and develop projects or don't develop projects. And then, of course, when they come back, they say, well, of course, what we want to do is go to Indian Canyons, or we want to go to the top of the tram, or they want to go to the wind farms, they all want to go to the same places. Mostly (laughs) those places are not available. So we ask them to identify three locations with the understanding that they may get their third choice. Mm -hmm. And should it be sandy? Should it be mountainous? And then the team identifies locations along with the curators who are simultaneously working with the artists to make their projects financially feasible, engineering feasible, environmentally feasible, Mm -hmm. because we need to make these projects earthquake-proof. When you see a project, oftentimes they're big cement blocks that go into the ground in order to secure them, windproof. I mean, there's all sorts of things that go into these projects. So the artists sort of rework their work, the team is finding locations, and then the fun begins because then we have to deal with the cities. (laughs) And the cities need to give us permits. Oftentimes, If we're digging in the valley at all, we deal with the Indian tribes because they're cultural artifacts that we may find. And they have people on staff that will be there to make sure that we don't disturb something. Simultaneously, we try to work with the environmental people, sometimes less successfully than others. With luck, we get permits. With luck, city councils approve these projects. And then simultaneously, they'll give us some help financially because installations are expensive, fabrications are expensive. But we've been very fortunate. There are a couple of construction companies in the Coachella Valley who we've worked with very successfully, who work with the artists. Mm -hmm. So that's been great. And actually during the pandemic, the main firm that we work with had to work on FaceTime with these artists, sometimes from Europe and the Middle East to make sure that they were constructing these projects in a way that was appropriate. Last, in 21, we were working with an artist in Saudi Arabia who had never worked remotely to have a piece constructed. She was very nervous about that process. So she worked with a Saudi curator who's based in LA, who was sort of her eyes on the ground
1: Mm -hmm.
2: with FaceTime, with our construction company. And it was a major piece that was 26 feet high with very unusual materials that we sent to Saudi Arabia that she worked with simultaneously. We sent her sand, we sent all, because it was all done with local sand. So she was working, the construction company was working. And when she came finally for the opening, she was so nervous and saw the piece and was totally blown away because it was better, more accurate. She said, I could never have done it. It was the piece in Desert Hot Springs. Right. Where it was multi-layered. was this crazy sort of...
1: It was a metaphor for earth, right? It looked foamy, but it was sort of in the... Yes, Earth's it one. was.
2: Yes, and it was a wall, Mm what's called Beyond the Walls. Yes. Yes.
1: And she did a project also at Desert X Ula, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. yes,
2: she did. So so needless to say, it's very complicated. And of course, if you're familiar with that piece, Mm -hmm. you know it became like a, a sail. It was in a windy area. And of course, you'd think the whole thing would topple. But there were huge steel struts into the ground, into cement, rebar. So it was a very complicated and expensive engineered process, which also one of our goals and mission, and we've been very successful with it, is to take these pieces down and leave no trace. Right. So that, too, is complicated.
1: And what is the philosophy behind that notion, the temporary notion of all of this?
2: Part of it is just being realistic as a small not-for-profits organization, which means that if we have permanent pieces, we have to maintain permanent pieces. And we're not a collecting organization,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: nor do we intend to become one. That was never the goal. Right. So that's one thing. The second part of it is really what I would say is the magic of Desert X. And that is we activate these sites. And if you've gone and seen them or been impacted about them at all, you never see that site again without seeing the piece. And I know, Alex, if if you've seen every show, then you saw the Doug Aiken yes. Mirage or what's known here as Mirror House. So, the first time that I saw Mirror House was as it was being built. And I was driving from my house with my nephew, and it was the first show that we were putting on. So there was a lot of angst and everything. And I was driving on a road called Racket Club, which is on the northern end of Palm Springs. And I was coming from the east, driving west. And Doug's piece was up a bit on the base of Mount San Jacinto in sort of a greenish area. And we were driving on Racket Club. And as we came, I could see from two miles away the glint of the mirror. And we were so excited because, you know, we couldn't believe that you could see it so far away. And it was very clear to us that you'd be able to see Mirror House from the 10 freeway. And then you'd be able to see it from all over the valley. We were giddy. So fast forward five, six years later, there is not a time that I drive on Racket Club that I don't wish that Mirror House was there. And I don't think of that moment. I mean, even now, talking about it
0: makes me emotional. It's funny. Oh. Robin and I were talking about this. We, we had done an episode on Christo and Jean-Claude. And their whole notion was they would come into a space and almost like creating a rainbow, create this temporary object or experience that's only there for a week or two. And it forever changes how you look at a space, it's how you think about it environmentally, politically. So it's to me, it's almost like having that experience times 16 when you go to Desert X. It's such a, a beautiful idea.
2: Yeah, it's not dissimilar. And even their
0: process Mm -hmm. is not
2: dissimilar. Ours is just (laughs) Well, you said
1: you said since you were in your 20s that you had this interest. And I'm just curious, were there land artists that inspired you at that time? Were there or artists in general that sort of stuck with you, that made this notion of museums without walls interesting to you?
2: Not specifically land artists, Mm -hmm. no. What got me started was artists working in the theater. And there was a small, sort of at the end of the 70s, for a variety of reasons, artists were starting to work in theater and and dance. There was money available for it. There was corporate support for it. It was sort of post-Black Mountain College. And... I became interested in it, and I actually did my master's thesis on artists in the theater, much to the chagrin of my professors. <laughs> but, and I ultimately got involved in a small off-off-Broadway theater company that was commissioning artists to work in the theater. It was also, by the way, a time that the broader public was just starting to engage with museums in a big way. It was sort of post King Tut, which I think was sort of the inflection point for art seeking people to go to museums. So I was fascinated with the idea of number one, theater audiences engaging with a set in a different way. And I was also interested in the idea of time on an art piece. And one of the pieces that I had seen actually, I think it was at the National Gallery. I was living in Washington at the time and Bob Rauschenberg had done a series of artworks that nobody liked. It was, they were sort of panned and I'm not sure that I remember the name of what he called them, but they were big, unstrung canvases that looked like the bows of boats. And you'd go into the gallery, and as you moved, the pieces would move. You know, nobody was in the gallery because people weren't going (laughs) to art museums then. And I had this big sort of satchel purse and I took it and I was sort of doing like whirling dervishes in the gallery purse in order to have <laughs> these pieces move. So the, a great you know, the guard mention. was sort of going, oh my God, I've got a lunatic in my <laughs> But it was that sort of feeling and sort of freedom to engage with an artwork and see it on all sides in a different space that I was fascinated with. Why should I be the only one that felt that way? Couldn't be, it had to be that there were other people that felt that way. And simultaneously, sort of the first, in my 20s, I was living in Georgetown. I was trying to make a living and I wanted to be in the art world. And I tried to put together a curated street art show. And it was sort of what I would call emerging artists. There was no art world in Washington, D.C. in the 70s. There was Sam Gilliam and a few little art galleries. But I didn't really understand about permits or anything else. So I was shot down. And that was sort of the genesis Mm -hmm. of trying to bring art out and the whys and wherefores. And then for 10 years, worked with this as a volunteer on the board of this small arts organization that was started by Ada Katz, Alex Katz's wife. And they were very involved with Poets Theater and the New York Poets. So we were producing poets' plays and commissioning basically Alex and Ada's buddies to do sets and costumes. For us, So we were working with, we did about a a show a year for about 10 years and worked with Red Grooms, Elizabeth Murray, Eric Fischel, Linda Benglis, and others. And did plays by Allen Ginsberg, John Ashbery, Alice Notley. We dug up an old play by... Pablo Picasso. So I was sort of doing that postgraduate degree. What fun. That sounds.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Great connection to all these artists growing up and, but I'm curious what your connection to the desert was. Did you? I had no connection. Really?
2: (laughs) I I hated the desert.
0: A big I had no connection. Connection.
2: No, I, and that's why it was truly accidental. I'm a New Yorker and I went to the Hamptons every summer. It was all about windswept beaches and shake shingles that look gray and rolling green hills and beautiful farmland. So I never liked the desert. I had a friend there who I used to visit. A week, a year, and you know, it sort of roll my eyes and go, you know, what's with the brown mountains? You know, these are so unattractive. But I ended up in the desert because I wanted to move out of New York, and this same friend offered me a place. And he said, you know, you can job hunt from Palm Springs. I wanted to go to San Diego, and you know, be near the ocean.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I said, oh, great idea, and I ended up getting a job. In the desert, and because I was bored, frankly, and I don't play golf, and (laughs) you know, swimming pools they're fine, but I did all this exploration. So, unlike my neighbors, I went to the Salton Sea. You know, everybody talks about the Salton Sea, but nobody goes there. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to Desert Hot Springs, I found out about Cabot Yerkeses. I found out about all these things. I went and tried to engage with the tribe, went to the top of the tram. I did all this stuff because I had time and I was living there. I was lucky because my job, I worked at what's known as Sunnylands or the Annenberg Retreat at Sunnyland's and because I worked there, I had access to city councils and had access to people that I might not have had access to. And I was curious. So I was asked, you know, like, where do you live? What do you do? And why are you here? So once I was there, you know, I said, well, but the art museum is nice and nobody's going there. And there are all these people that collect art. You know, why aren't they going to the art museum and people are coming here for music and they're coming here to play golf and watch tennis matches, but they're not coming here to see art. So how do I change that paradigm? Right. Make it more interesting for me, Mm -hmm. selfishly. You know, I now I now like the Brown Mountains and I now sort of love this place because it was so quirky and weird. and. Nobody understood it right. in its entirety, but I understood it better than many.
1: Right. And it sounds like you really delved into the history of it as well. And then some of these pieces that are in Desert X speak about the history of the land in, in so many ways, like Jackrabbit Homestead and the
2: land grants. Do you want to talk about that piece a little bit? Well, Kim Stringfellow is mm-hmm. somebody that I had met early on in my stay, because of course I was going to the high desert a lot. And I met her through a wonderful friend and artist, Randy Palumbo, who has a place up in Joshua Tree. And then subsequently Neville met her. And of course, all of her scholarship and interest is in the history of what's known as the Jackrabbit Homestead and the Homesteader Act, which brought people to the desert where the government offered people five acres for five dollars as long as they developed it with a place to live on. And Kim then built one of these houses and put it for Desert X-21 in the middle of a parking lot. Well, it had at the time the adjunct to the Palm Springs Art Museum and also like the Chamber of Commerce and a couple of restaurants. So there was a perfect situation where Neville told me that Kim was going to put it in the middle of this parking lot. And I could not for the life of me understand why she would ever have chosen that location. And of course, when you got there, it was not only brilliant because you saw this little precious 400-square-foot house or whatever it was in the middle of the parking lot. But it was juxtaposed to this brutalist Chamber of Commerce building. But what it also spoke to is the fact that that area was actually yards from where jackrabbit homesteaders were which is something that I was totally unaware of. So yes, it it was brilliant. She was brilliant. (laughs) And I personally learned a lot. And I'm assuming that that everybody that visited did as well.
0: Just talking about artistic director Neville Wakefield, how did you meet Neville? How did you decide to work together? I'm just curious.
2: Neville Wakefield is an atypical curator. He's a writer. He's a philosopher. He's enormously smart. And he's also very interested in art outside of the walls of the gallery. He's very interested in land art. And I think Neville probably came to his interest through land art. One of the things that people don't know about Neville that I admire him for enormously is that he also has extraordinary street smarts. So unlike many curators, writers, philosophers, he can talk what I would call the art speak, which puts many people to sleep, but he also can speak about art and understands how to speak about art to people that don't really want to know about the philosophical underpinnings or the socio-political underpinnings of an artwork. And his genius is that he understands how an artwork can be both challenging and accessible. And I believe, although I've not been in conversations (laughs) that he's had with artists, that he's able to get the artists he's working with to understand that as well. And that's, I think, the sort of sweet spot of Desert X. So when we met Neville, we were a brand new arts organization. We knew we wanted to be unlike many arts organizations, you know, we didn't want to be seen as sort of the people's choice awards. This was (laughs) not what we were creating. We wanted to work with important artists. We wanted to have challenging artwork, and we wanted to be taken seriously in the art world. So we were a little bit nervous about who we were going to hire as a curator we also spoke to lots of well-known curators. But when we met him, it was very clear that he understood where we were coming from and was somebody that could execute that. And he certainly proved that first time and continued to. So, which was why we made him artistic director as well as curator, because it was very clear that we were all very much on the same page. In some interview he did, or maybe it was during that search committee interview process, he said, this is a dream for me. He said, I can't believe that we found each other. So that's how it happened. It's wonderful.
1: It seems that Neville's brought on other curators as well from all over. And and there's been these interesting cross-cultural interactions in each one, each iteration. And you've also explored and responded to some interesting social and political issues throughout the years, from climate to the water crisis, migration, reverse migration, and segregation, et cetera. And I'm just wondering... What are some of the standout works that explore these themes and conversations for you?
2: One of the standout works in 2021 that responded both to the environment as well as the sociopolitical climate nationally, internationally, as well as locally was a piece called Wishing Well by Serge Adekwai Kloti. Surgeons from Ghana and his piece spoke to the water crisis in Ghana very specifically because he uses these yellow plastic pieces cut from gallons that local people in Ghana use to transport water uh-huh. from wells that look like the shape of these squares that he built in Palm Springs, those gallons have a colonial history because they were brought originally by the British to carry cooking oil. So there's that whole history. So of course he was fascinated with the water crisis. Mm -hmm. In terms of the socio-political situation, what we had locally was The original space for that work was supposed to be in Coachella. And part of the process, as I've already discussed, was to go to the city council and tell them what the piece was like. The city council has always been very supportive of us. And we had already put in the budget the amount of money they were giving us. They had already identified the space where this piece was going to go. So we assumed it was a shoo-in. What happens in Coachella, just as a side piece to sort of set the stage, is that there is an area in Coachella that's been under siege with lead in the water. And it's people in an RV park and the landlord is terrible. and So there's a whole bunch of water issues in Coachella, which we, of course, thought was great because this piece spoke to water and would get people talking. Fast forward, we're in the council meeting. I certainly didn't go. It was on Zoom because of the pandemic. Our co-curator, Cesar Garcia Alvarez, and our executive director were there to present. And basically, the city council said, it speaks to water. We don't want any art piece here speaking about water. Let people in the west part of the valley talk about water. Let them know about water crisis. We have our own water crisis. We don't want anybody coming here. No decline. Wow. Yeah. So of course it made the local paper. And the next day, one of the people on our curatorial team gets a phone call from the manager of the James O. Jesse Highland Gateway Center in Palm Springs, which is located in what would be called, for lack of a better word, the center of the African-American community in Mm -hmm. Palm Springs. And he goes, this is third-hand comment from me. (laughs) oh my God, this is an African artist that wants to put a piece up about water. Uh, will he come and do workshops with our community? Oh, great. Will he meet with our kids? Sure. He said, we want that piece here. Wow. So we obviously put that piece, we were delighted because we have wanted to work with the James O'Jesse center for years and we didn't have the right piece or the right politics or whatever. So we were gleeful and the artist was happy. So we built the piece there and the backstory beyond the fact that it's the center of the African-American community, the history is not a very pretty history. And simultaneously, That community was trying to remove a statue of an old mayor from in front of our city hall because that mayor was responsible for burning out the neighborhood, which was downtown Palm Springs in the 60s, and displaced that whole community, which then was forced to move to this area where the James Jesse Center is. So not only did we have people who had, ne- number one, never even knew that we had an African-American community, but who had lived for, for generations and had never visited that location, but that piece remains there for the moment. But you know, so that piece sort of personifies everything.
0: Yeah. There have been a lot of pieces of Desert X that unearth history that a lot of people don't know about. One piece comes to mind, Nicholas Galanin's Never Forget. I love this piece and it speaks to the displacement of the uh, Kowila people and the indigenous land. And it's done in a way, again, you mentioned everybody from Hollywood coming into Palm Springs. Here it was in these sort of 45-foot letters that resemble the Hollywood sign, but it says Indian land. And there was a lot of controversy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that piece and how that speaks to unearthing a history.
2: Nicholas Gallan is a Native American from Alaska. And his practice is conceptual. He's an activist artist. And he had been developing that piece for several years. We had tried to use it in 2019, but it was impossible for us to raise the money or find the right place for it in 2019. So Nicholas took the concept of the Hollywood sign, which was built initially for a whites-only real estate development in Hollywood that was called... Hollywood land. So he riffed off Hollywood land for his project, which was called Indian land. And it was both a sign of, to sort of speak to the Korea tribe, but it really is a sign to speak to all of the land in the United States. It could have sat virtually anywhere and resonate. So I don't think he spoke only to the Cahuillas. And he is also speaking to what's known as the Land Back Movement, which is gaining momentum in the United States. And we partnered with an organization called the Native American Land Conservancy. I believe, which has, I believe it's national, and there's a group in the Coachella Valley. And Nicholas started a GoFundMe page so that people would contribute to this organization that's raising money to purchase available lands and have them owned by Native American tribes. I may have that slightly wrong. That's about what Nicholas was doing with that.
0: It's fun. That that piece, I almost felt like it should have been a permanent piece, especially where it was located and, and the response that it got. I mean, from the public, I just, I always thought it would be That's So it's sad to hear that because I thought it was such a powerful piece.
1: And it's also interesting because it is a commentary on Hollywood and, and everything, you, all the political issues you mentioned, but also just, Hollywood's glorification of settler violence. And there were so many layers to
2: that piece. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But there again, it's one of those pieces where if you've seen it, every time you drive into Palm Springs, you miss it, right? You go,
0: oh my God, where is it? And why isn't it here?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I don't. You know, the other, this is sort of a flip side of that. That was a highly... Photographed piece. It was on social media during Desert X. I can't tell you how many photos I see of every single piece, and that was just one of them. I'm just curious about your thoughts on social media and how it plays a role in Desert X. I think, you
2: know, going back to the original part of our conversation, it was part of the synchronicity to the success of our project. When we started, there was no thought to social media. But social media was gaining steam in such an enormous way. And as a result, social media fueled our audience. So it's played an enormous role. Sometimes, unfortunately, to the detriment of the pieces. Going back to the Mirror House, for instance, we had a very strong relationship with the Coachella Music Festival. And that first year, Coachella, on the Monday, I believe it was after the second weekend, it may have been the first, they put out on Facebook, which was then still sort of the social media place everybody went, hey, the the traffic is really bad going home today. Don't jump on the 10. Go and see Doug Aikens' Mirage. So what we had that Monday after the music festival was a huge traffic jam. And the people living there were beside themselves. So although we wanted and Doug tried to get that piece to stay another three months, there was no way the city council or the neighborhood would happen. So that's one issue. It happened in 21 We had a TikToker come opening weekend and she went to Eduardo Sarabia's passenger, which was a maze. And we needed to limit people because of COVID and because she could only have so many people going through the maze. So we had literally thousands and we didn't know where they were coming from immediately off of TikTok. So for we had to bring in security. We had to bring in extra docents. We had to have people sign up for tickets, free tickets, because of course, what we haven't said is this project was always supposed to be free and continues to be free, as is all of our public programs. But be that as it may, it was crazy. (laughs) But it also has fueled wonderful visits to every project and many projects where we could have hundreds of people at a time. So yes, it's played an enormous role for good and for, for annoyances.
0: <laughs> Not bad, just annoyances. Right. I just want to talk about Desert X's recent expansion to the Saudi Arabia. This started in 2020 and it also happened this year. And our Neville Wakefield, who we were just talking about, was a big part of this. He collaborated, I believe, in, both, in terms of both, with two Saudi female curators. I'm just curious, what made you decide to go to Saudi Arabia? The Desert
2: X relationship in Saudi Arabia started because a well-connected artist in Saudi Arabia came to me. I met him through a mutual friend. And he had read about Desert X happening in 2017 and wanted to talk to me because he was very interested also in about getting art out into the public. His main interest at the time was to get Saudi artists better known internationally. So he and I started a conversation and I introduced him to Neville. So fast forward to 2019, he came in 2019 and he spoke to me and he basically said, I think the time has come for my country to have something like Desert X. And he said, I believe I've identified an organization in Saudi where it makes sense. And he said, and we have a real desert. (laughs) Not like here in Palm Springs. (laughs) So he identified this organization, which is called the Royal Commission for Alula, which is activating a desert that's in the northwest of Saudi Arabia. So we started to work with the Royal Commission and we said... Yes, we think a desert X would be great there. And we insist that you do it as we do it. We want it to be free to anybody that wants to come. We want artists to be free to express themselves as they wish. We want, I don't want to say high quality, but we want significant artworks. And we want you, in order to do that, we want you to work with Neville as one of the curators or as an advisor in a way so that we're assured that your show reflects our mission, which we believe will begin the same kinds of cultural dialogue and cultural conversations that we've had in the Coachella Valley. And they said, perfect, we'll do that. So that's the genesis. Neville, before we sort of continued that conversation, we had Neville go to Saudi. And this was in, I guess it was in 2019. And I said, you go see who you're dealing with and see if this is even feasible. And he came back and he said, it's amazing. He said, I've met the curators. I've met the female-led staff. I've seen the space. It's extraordinary what they're trying to do. And I went, okay. And I went, okay. We went through a very deep, soul searching information gathering process as a board. Mm -hmm. And it was a very difficult situation for us. And it was difficult because it became an emotional touch point for certain board members, one in particular. And, It was on one level that sort of board conversation, board dialogue was very important for moving forward with the project. And I say that because it sort of informed the other board members as to what we were getting into. And it also moved us forward and made us more determined in a way, because we understood the landscape a little bit better in terms of the political landscape, in terms of how emotional people might get when we were deciding to move forward with a country that's known to be autocratic, to known as terrible on human rights. We didn't go lightly into this relationship. But what the board did decide, and it was a majority, we're a small board, but it was a majority, a big majority. What we decided was that it was more important to try to um, engage, at the very least, artist to artist than to not have this conversation move forward. And of course, among the people that we tried to inform our decision with were our own artists. And Neville went to them and said, what would you do? Would you participate? Do you think it's the right thing? And for the most part, they said, you have to start the conversation somewhere. And what better way to start it than by having this kind of dialogue? So the concept was for the show in 2020, and it was for 2022 as well, was to have 15 artists, more or less, five Saudi Arabian artists, five from what we they called the region, other Middle Eastern or North African artists, and five Western artists. So that seemed to us to be a really good way to move forward because it meant, obviously, the artists that Neville was curating, if you will, would be coming from Europe and the United States or Australia, and would be coming and working with Saudi artists and and regional artists. And during that first show where Lita Albuquerque and Shirin Gurgis and Superflex participated, they were able to do the pieces they wanted to do. They came back in awe of the country. And when we went, a number of board members and myself went for the opening. And we saw that this country was going through these enormous changes. right? And that we had, in fact, done the right thing. There was no question that amidst the terrible news that our newspapers and media outlets insist on talking about, and that's fine, that there is this sea change going on from a social standpoint. And while we sit and sort of giggle that women are finally driving. That's sort of the most or amongst the most insignificant of the changes. So you have a country that's been led by the ultra conservative religious right that's vanished from the (laughs) streets. You know, where you had restaurants where there was an entrance for men and an entrance for families and a brick wall in between. The wall is gone. Men and women are in restaurants together. There are white people who are male and female and Saudi. All of this was unheard of three, four years ago. So that's what we found. We believe and continue to believe that our agreement to work with the Royal Commission for Alula, to help them do a world-class challenging art exhibition that for the most part, it's Saudi citizens that are going and visiting. And I hear that this last show where local, Citizens from Alula have visited two, three, four, five times where they've got family guides like we have, family days where families are coming out with their children and doing picnics. A country that didn't have movie theaters or theater theaters or music showed the Desert X 21 Coachella Valley film in their movie theater where men and women were sitting together and viewing the film is to me a home run. Yeah. Uh, So that's what I have to say about Saudi. And I don't mean to sound like goody two shoes or like I'm doing Saudi propaganda, not by a long stretch, but that's what I can report.
1: It's really interesting. And it sounds like this arts festival as an arts project is contributing to a cultural shift. And it's also a bridge building effort in some ways and educational for us all to see this interaction of, of Saudi artists, of the region's artists and the interaction between artists worldwide.
2: Yes. Yes. And I think that's what we want. Mm -hmm. We've wanted it from the get go. We've always talked about how to engage internationally. You know, mm-hmm. would an artist do a piece in two countries? Would we go to other deserts? All of that was part of initial conversation. Right,
1: and where do you stand on that now beyond Alula, Do you see any other collaborative projects with other countries Yes. and deserts? Yes,
2: yes, we, we're very interested in that. We've had inquiries. From other countries that we're in conversation with, there are countries we would like to go to. You know, we would love to go to Mexico for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. We've had very preliminary conversations with people that have access in Africa. I would love to go to Israel just because that would <laughs> create lots of people's uh, a lot of people to talk. Um,
1: <laughs> it sounds like you like a little of this stirring up controversy and, and
2: conversations. Well, I do. Mm-hmm. I do. And what I, I guess what I found very disappointing when we move forward with Saudi was what I would term the lack of conversation. And that's what we found At the board level, it's what I found subsequently with donors literally would not speak to me. You know, I said, I understand what your feelings are, but come and have lunch with me and at least hear why we're moving forward with this project. And they wouldn't. And, And a friend of mine,
0: she's not my friend anymore. She will not discuss it with me. Did it strengthen the board or the existing backers by going forward? The people that obviously had a problem moved away, but did it strengthen the core people that were there? Yes.
2: It not only strengthened us, it was really interesting. And here again, talk about the media. The media brings up constantly that three board members left the board. What they don't report is three board members join the board because we move forward. And the three board members that join the board are stronger board members than the three that left the board ever were, which speaks very loudly to me. So that was a big vote of confidence. And I think any board that goes through that together bonds in an amazing way. Mm -hmm. So yes, the board is very, very strong. And as president of the board, it makes my life really fun and nice and collegial. And I don't mean they're not just yes men. These are committed, aware, smart individuals who really want this mission to succeed, they get it. And that's what you want from a board. Right. You know, you don't want people that just write checks. You don't want people that just go, oh, maybe I'll come to your gala, which we don't have, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, it, it's, and and of course, I will also say the coda to this is that What we're seeing is that some of our donors that felt disenfranchised are slowly coming back. So that's a real vote of confidence that we're doing something really important on 30 different
0: levels. Right. Desert X 2023 is coming up very soon. And is there anything that you can tell us about this new exhibition? I can't tell you very
2: much because as I explained,
0: It's a long process. We want to ask anyway.
2: (laughs) And it's anybody's guess which artists we're going to work with, which sites. That that we won't know probably much before the end of this year. But uh, Neville is working this year with a curator by the name of Diana Campbell, who is based in Europe and has worked for many years with what's known as the Dhaka Art Summit in Bangladesh. And one of the reasons we determined to work with her is that she was very interested in the idea of water. Bangladesh, as you probably know, suffers floods and too much water. Right. So she was interested in the idea of um, making that bridge, if you will, of countries and places that have too much water with those that don't have enough.
1: Oh, that's so interesting.
2: So I think what visitors to Desert X 23 will say, and, and the show opens March 4th, are artists dealing with water. Mm-hmm. And I think what you may also see is some artists or some of the works possibly dealing with our current national situation having to do with women's rights and our fear of other rights being lost as a result of a more conservative Supreme Court. But that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. One of the issues is that because we work two years out, sometimes it's hard for us and artists to respond quickly. And we're hopeful that now because no piece is set in stone yet <laughs> that we'll be able
0: to respond. It's exciting. Well, I, I, can't, I can't wait to go.
1: Me too. Yeah. Well, be- <laughs> so at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw, which is six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. Are you game?
0: I'll try. Favorite film.
2: Desert X, 2021.
1: (laughs) What are you reading right now?
2: A Paragon. I'm not sure that's how you pronounce it. Favorite song? Almost any song by Kanye West.
1: Favorite television show?
0: Trevor Noah. Most underrated artist? Larry Rivers.
1: Favorite guilty pleasure?
2: The New York Times crossword puzzle. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank right. you so much, Susan. This was so much fun. Art Laws is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld.
0: Music is by Vortcore.
1: And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles.
0: Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa,
1: and I'm Robin Rosenfeld.
0: Follow us on Instagram at ArtLawspod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.